0: Good morning for those who don't know me my name is Haley, and I'll be doing the Bible reading today. Um, There'll be three Bible readings. The first one is from Luke chapter 8 verses 16 to 21. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken from them. Now Jesus' mother and brother came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, Your mother and brother are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. The second reading is from Isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 to 5. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light." And kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. And our final reading is from Isaiah 60 verses 19 to 22. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are a shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation." I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Stephen, and thank you, Haley. I invite you to grab your Bibles as we turn again to Luke chapter 8. We'll be looking at 16. To 21 this morning. And last week we learned about the parable of the sower, uh, which talked about the importance of how we hear Jesus. That theme is going to be continued this morning as Jesus offers us more explanation and calls us into faith again. Uh, I'm very encouraged and excited to be in this text with you today. Uh, this is because. The message that is found in these words can be life-changing, and I don't say that because I'm a minister and I'm supposed to. Uh, The message in these words can be life-changing because it has everything to do with your identity, with who you are. It has everything to do with your future, what will happen to you, as well as your present, your experience of life right now. So many people right now are chasing a change in their circumstances. They're chasing and looking after things, trying to find the spark, trying to find something that will energize them, trying to get to the next level, trying to progress past the old hurts. Can I encourage you, if you want your life to be changed, hear the words that Jesus has to say to us this morning. Because they will fundamentally and radically transform who you are, if they're understood correctly. We come to Luke chapter 8, verse 16, and this message is titled, Seeing Jesus. It's a bit of a play on words, and it's also a bit of a paradox. Uh, We'll get to that in a moment. But the reason uh, this is going to be, I believe, such a powerful message, uh, not not from myself, but from Jesus, is because it really answers the question of the relevance of Jesus today. What is the relevance of Christ? What difference can he make? What is his importance today? On the one level, it seems like a fair question because you might say, what does the life of a Nazarene Jew living 2,000 years ago, have to do with us today all the way here in Australia. But Jesus claims to have an importance that transcends both time and culture and ethnicity. It transcends gender. It transcends your sexual orientation. It transcends your economic status, your professional status, your past, your aspirations, everything. Uh, The relevance of Jesus today is... Determinative of our future and how we will spend eternity. It's also determinative of our present and how we behold or fail to behold the kingdom of God in all its glory. So by way of overview, this text that we come to in Luke chapter eight, verse 16 to 21, it offers us part two of Jesus' teaching about the importance of how we hear his teaching. <laughs> That was what the parable of the sower was all about. It talked about if Jesus is the one who's bringing the word of God, the revelation of our creator, and the parable told us that even though there's no deficiency in that seed, there's no deficiency in the message that Jesus would bring, the effectiveness of that seed or the germination of that seed in the life of those who hear it is entirely dependent upon the condition in which it's heard or the condition of the soils. Well, Jesus is going to continue to explain that. And here, paradoxically, Jesus will teach us that how we hear him depends on how we see him. This text blends elements of oral and visual perception, but we can't get it twisted. The extent to which we give hearing to Jesus' revealing words is determined by the extent to which we have beheld his authority, identity, and purpose. And on the face of this, 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 is very, this is almost common sense. This is why we put people in uniforms. Because if somebody flashed their lights at you and asked you to pull over to the side of the road, and they got out of their car, and they were wearing their their shorts and their t-shirts or their, a hoodie and a baseball cap, you'd say, what right do you have to pull me over? But no, we dress our policemen, the, the traffic cops, we dress them in bright uniforms. And here in this country, you have that wonderful checkered pattern. You cannot miss a police car in Australia. That's what we, because we're supposed to see and we're supposed to recognize there's an authority in this individual. Okay, that means when they tell me to pull over, I need to pull over. That means when they ask to see my license, I need to show them my license. You see, how you see somebody impacts the weight with which you hear their words. And the same is true in this text. Some contextual features of Luke chapter 8, we see here that Jesus presents first an image and secondly an illustration. Verses 16 to 18 constitute the image and verses 19 to 21 constitute the illustration. But what they're doing is they're bringing further explanation of the appropriate response to the revelation that Jesus is bringing about the kingdom of God. And I just want to note a few things for the context for you. First of all, the audience, Jesus, he's continuing to speak to his disciples. There's not much of a break, even though your Bible might put a break between verse 15 and 16. There's really no break. And so Jesus is still continuing that explanation. In terms of the arrangement, Luke is using material here that is found in Matthew as well as in Mark. But he is tailoring it tailoring it both in terms of its placement, where he's putting it in his gospel account, and making slight adjustments to how he phrases it here. Thirdly, there is in these words a fulfillment, and I hope by the end you will see that Jesus' words are fitting the expectation of what the Messiah's role would be. You say, what's the Messiah, or who's the Messiah? It's a good question. Messiah was the one that God had promised would come. Messiah just means anointed one or chosen one. The one that God had deemed would bear his favor in a unique way, who would be his authoritative representative, who would speak the truth of God's kingdom and rule and his unfolding plan He would bring redemption for his people, Israel, but it's a redemption that spills over and extends even to those beyond Israel and thus becomes a fulfillment of God's promise to his servant Abraham, where he said that all nations would be blessed through his seed. And so the words Jesus says here are fitting of the expectations that came along with that Messiah's role. But there's also an element of reversal in here as well. You'll notice as we get to it that the reward of right hearing is more hearing. <laughs> if, you, if you listen well to Jesus, you get more. And so for a Jesus who, who doesn't see any distinction really uh, in terms of social status or wealth, and he, he's happy to even have notorious sinners sitting at his feet, this Jesus who seems to love indiscriminately, here he says he is discriminate in how he rewards his revelation, that those who hear well will get more. And those who don't, even what they think they have will be removed. Again, this upside down nature of the kingdom. But what you need to really see clearly here in this text is this idea of perception, and Daryl Bach puts it this way. He says that Jesus, sorry, I misspelled here. (laughs) It's supposed to be H-E-R-E. Jesus here is calling for faith through an extended teaching on revelation and response. You could write the story of the Bible as a story of revelation and response. Genesis 1 to 3, revelation of the creative, creative God. Response, the rebellion. You could carry that theme of revelation and response all the way through Moses and Pharaoh, through the. Redemption of God's people into the promised land through David and Solomon and the kings and the temple all the way through now to today, revelation and response, a God who creates and reveals and how will we respond? So the themes that are brought out in this passage are really central to what it means to be made in the image of God. If you've been created in the image of a designer and all-powerful author of life, then how ought we to respond to the one who gave us that life? It's a very simple outline this morning. There's an image and an illustration. The image here is that Jesus is the lamp revealing the kingdom of God, and the illustration that we'll unpack is that God's children are the ones who hear Jesus rightly. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father in heaven, would you grant to us insight through the Holy Spirit, that we might comprehend truth of who you are, that we might see ourselves in your light, that we would know you and be found in you, and that we would be transformed into the image of Jesus. We're so grateful for your word and for your spirit, that they're alive, as is Jesus, reigning at your right hand. Thank you for the privilege of knowing him. We pray more would find him today amen. Jesus begins in verse 16 with an illustration of the lamp. Follow with me. No one lights a lamp, Jesus says, and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. Now, this has been described as a parable But I'm inclined to agree with one writer, Daryl Bach, who sees it more as a proverb. The, the, The teaching that Jesus gives here, it's common sense teaching that can be used across a number of different scenarios. Maybe you've seen those memes that are going around lately where they list something somebody would do, something somebody would do, and then they say, no one, no one would do this, no one ever. I sent out an email recently, giving a link to a members meeting that we had so that people could watch it. And a a very cheeky member of the congregation wrote back to me, uh, no one, no one ever, pastors, hey, want to watch the church meeting? We are used to thinking in terms of categories of being a fish out of water. And you say, this is something that nobody would do Nobody would, nobody would do this. If you're, if you're in a dark place and you, and, and you need some light, you don't light the lamp and then immediately cover it up. It totally defeats the purpose. It's a proverb. It's a proverb that has to do with purpose. But when we consider where it fits in relation to what Jesus has been talking about, we see that he's speaking about his purpose. Now, this saying is used differently across Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you may be more familiar with Matthew's use of this proverb, where Jesus tells the disciples, you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. And so it's very common to read these verses, verse 16, as Jesus telling the disciples, look, you're to take my teaching and you're to go spread it. Now, 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 that's true, the disciples were to do that, but that's not, I believe, the best reading of this here. You see, the Messiah, when he was foretold would come, as we read in Isaiah chapter 60, when God said he would come to his people, that his anointed one would come, he would come and he would be a light In Luke's gospel, in in Zechariah's song, Zechariah talked about the ministry of John the Baptist as preparing for the dawning of the Son of Righteousness. It's a picture of light coming, just like the sun comes up every morning. The picture that Jesus is employing here is that his ministry is one of revelation. Jesus is the lamp And the light that is shining from that lamp is the revelation of the kingdom of God. It's it's light that will continue to be transmitted in the future by the disciples, but at this early stage in Luke's gospel, and in particular this early stage in the ministry of Jesus, the disciples haven't really been engaged or tasked yet with doing something. They're simply invited in to behold the light who is Jesus. And what a powerful image this is. Jesus himself, the lamp, it means so many things. Now, most people don't get very excited about lights. Some people do. There's a few sparkies uh, out there who are, who are watching you get excited about lights and all the different things that they can do. Uh, I grew up in a family that got excited about lights. It's because our family was in the lighting business. Uh, we didn't own the business, but my, my father, my aunt, my uncle, uh, my mom, uh, myself eventually, other cousins. We all we all work for uh, America's largest lighting retailer. Uh, and, and we worked for this company. And when I was finishing college and I had to get a job, you, you know, you often look to your connections. Your family's a big connection. They're all working in the lighting industry. So I got a job selling lamps. And I was so surprised to learn about all the different functions of lighting. There's all sorts of different functions. Most of us just think it's dark. I need a light. That's the, that's the main function. But, but lighting, it can set mood. It can create or illuminate beauty. Lighting can, can, can complete an aesthetic. It, it, it can decorate a room. It can help you to perform certain tasks. It can provide security and safety. The light itself produces heat. There's so much that, that comes in this idea of a light. And, and if Jesus is a light, you, you can look at that and you could say, you know, Jesus provides so many different things through the arrival of the Messiah. He helps us behold the beauty of God. He provides us with security and safety. He, he gives us insight as to how, how to live and, and, and how to perform tasks and all of these different things to do. Yeah, a, a life with, with Jesus, the light in it, is, is beautiful and, and it's holy and rich. And, and for those who have any sort of sense or taste for, for righteousness, they, they look at a life touched with Christ and they behold a beauty in it. You, you read the pages of the gospel and you watch his tenderness and his, the gentleness with which he interacts with people and forgives people, and you say, that's beautiful. Jesus, if you were a light, you'd, you'd be this beautiful Tiffany lamp just, 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 just shining through. And while all of those things are true, none of those things are the point that Jesus is making here. Because the point of the light in this passage is to reveal what was hidden and what was in the dark. Of all the functions of light, of all the different ways it can be used, of all the different beauty and warmth and security and majesty and all the things that it can provide for us, light in its fundamental principle is meant to reveal what was hidden. Jesus is bringing revelation, knowledge, understanding, insight, truth with a capital T that previously was not known, previously was not beheld. Jesus is saying, God didn't send me here, so that I could hide away in a corner. God sent me here with a message. The things that I have to say are things that are not known naturally. And can I gently suggest to you, Jesus cannot be a decoration in your life. He did not come to be on a side table In the home of your heart, he came to provide illumination, to reveal, to expose, to show. That's what he's saying here. Which makes sense, he says, the result of this, verse 17, is that there is nothing that will remain hidden this light that's starting like a candle, and that's, that's effectively what an oil lamp would do. That's probably what Luke has in mind here. What's starting as a candle would, would emit into this brilliant, bright light where everything will be disclosed. But notice the hint at the end of verse 16. The lamp is lit so that those who come in can see the light. And here... I direct your attention back just a few verses before when Jesus is telling the disciples why he's speaking in parables. He says, I talk in parables. The secret of the kingdom of God's been given to you, but to the rest I speak in parables. Though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. There's this sense in which the parables, these common everyday sayings of Jesus that are meant to seem a little bit distant, maybe a little bit vague or even opaque. For those who want to see by the light of his truth, it will draw them in. And Jesus says, when they come in, they will see by my light. What this means is, if you want to know God, if you want to understand and see the kingdom of God, you must go to Jesus. And in going to Jesus, he will reveal things that are hidden, You say, what is revealed? What's this light shining on? Well, I don't think we have time to cover all the things, but let's just try to name a few. Let's start with the light of Jesus illuminating the creator God through a natural observance of what we see in the world and in the universe, we ought to conclude that there is an all-powerful being that is bigger, mightier, more powerful than us. But in the light of Jesus, you learn the heart of this God. You learn that he's not just some distant autocrat. He's not someone who's just ruling and banging the gavel of the universe. He's not the, the divine watchmaker who simply winds up the universe, sets it on the shelf, sits back in his easy chair, and it, watches it tick away. That's not God at all. Jesus reveals a God who is near, a God who is compassionate, a God who dwells with the humble and the lowly. You say, what else does Jesus' light expose? It exposes a change. It exposes a turning. It shows the cracks and the fissures and the, fallen, the fallenness of this world that, that, that we are currently inhabiting, but it also reveals the coming remedy. It reveals a, a new creation. It reveals hope. You come to Christ, you see things differently. You see the remaking, not the unmaking. You see the restoring. You see that your fate is not sealed. You don't have to become a stoic, which which means you simply learn to accept what is. Where's the hope in that? The light of Christ reveals a real hope. That things are different now, and they're in the process of becoming different. in the far reaches of all of creation and in the innermost recesses and corners of your heart. It reveals God's perfection. Here in this text is the doctrine of illumination. It's the doctrine of God revealing himself. This means that God is not the sum total creation of our thoughts about him. Perception is a very real factor, but perception is not, is not determinative of who God is. As Paul would say, let God be proved true and every man a liar. Jesus comes like the rising of a light. John would, in the writing of his gospel, explain that light has come to the world, but this is the verdict, that men and women love darkness rather than light. They didn't want to see the light. They didn't want to be exposed, because what happens when you come into the presence, and you behold the beauty and the majesty, the perfection of God, and you see him and his goodness and his holiness, suddenly you become very self-conscious and you realize, whoa, I don't measure up. But that's the point. It means if you're trying to measure up, if you're trying to, to, to pull out the yardstick and, and prove a case to God and say, I, I do measure up, God, you, you should accept me. Look at all the things that I've done. You're ignoring the light. You have a disease you cannot cure. You have cracks you cannot mend. This leads to the conclusion in verse 18, Jesus says, therefore, consider carefully how you listen he moves from the visual imagery to the audible imagery. That's what we said at the outset. As one commentator, John T. Carroll, would write, he says, faith requires attentiveness to both the word that Jesus speaks and the the acts that disclose the reign of God. As we move further in this chapter over the next three weeks, we're going to look at the acts of Jesus. He's going to demonstrate his power. And it's meant to, Elevate our esteem and our understanding of his authority. But here, Jesus says, listen carefully to how you hear. Mark says, watch what you hear. And and, and that's that's a good point. It's a good point to consider what things we take in and what things we don't take in. But here, Jesus, according to Luke, is saying, be careful how you listen. Watch out, literally, how you listen. I found much delight in a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached on this. And he said a number of things that I'm going to share with you, which I think are instructive. The first thing, one of the first things he said was, we should not consider it a light and easy thing to understand the gospel. Yes, the truth of the gospel is so simple that a child could understand it, but let's not pretend for a moment that this is an easy thing for the hard hearted person to hear. Let's not readily assume that we can just stroll in here, or as yes, you are, stroll into the lounge room and take a seat on the couch, and suddenly the truth of God's just going to hit you. We need to listen appropriately. Spurgeon would be so bold as to tell his hearers, he would say, you need to put as much energy into hearing as I've put into speaking. I'm curious, how did you come here this morning? How did you come to turn on your television? How did you come to sit here in front of this message? What was your your expectation? Are you waiting for me to say something clever? Are you waiting for an illustration that's going to be entertaining? Are you waiting for something that you can share over the coffee table? Are, 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 are you in blind consuming mode? Or have you come because you understand that the person who's going to occupy this pulpit is going to open for you the divinely inspired word of God and that there is things to be taught about the universal reign of a sovereign creator here this morning? Well, in case you're waiting for a funny illustration, I'll give you one. Spurgeon told this story. He said there was a, there was a, there was a man who was a fool. He, he, he might have had some sort of mental problems. He was, he was just a bit of an idiot and everybody knew it, but he could do one thing really, really well. He was a very good messenger. And as Spurgeon is preaching in the 19th century, he doesn't have email, he doesn't, have, he doesn't even have fax machines or SMSs or anything like that. So in order to convey a message, you, you, you relied on somebody often to carry that message. And if you didn't have time to sit down and write out a note and, and, and use the paper and the expense to, to send something like that or a telegram, you would just tell somebody, I need you to take this message and deliver it. And Spurgeon said this, this man was a fool, and nobody respected him at all, but he did one thing really, really well. He was a really good messenger, but he was a bit quirky. And so what he would do is, when he would show up to receive the message, he'd put one hand over his one ear, and with his other ear, he'd go like this. And he'd listen. Yep. Okay. And as soon as the messenger finished talking, he would take his other hand, and he would go like this. And he'd run through the town, going like this. So that by the time he arrived at his destination, he would give the message. Somebody said to him, why do you do that? They said, well, I don't wanna open this one and it fall out the other side. It's ludicrous, that's not how memory works, that's not how retention works, we know that, right? But Spurgeon said, although he was a fool, he got something exactly right. He knew to retain the message, he needed to block out the noise. And as silly and as stupid as that might seem to you, how many of us need to go like this? We need to hear the word of God. We need to say, I'm gonna stop listening to everything else. I'm gonna put my hands over my ears and I'm I'm just gonna retain the word of the Lord. How many of us got so many voices, so many inputs, so many different things telling us what is true, telling us what to feel, telling us what to be, telling us the way the world is, telling us the way we are, telling us the way our family is, telling us the way everybody is. Everyone wants to weigh in on everything. And thank you Mark Zuckerberg. We all have a way to do that. Thank you Twitter. We all have a platform. My well, last from Spurgeon just because I thought this was clever. He talked about hearing well, and he said, he gave seven things. He said, if you want to hear well, do these things. Listen attentively. They're in alphabetical order. Attentively, that means listen with the goal of retaining. You would say listen believingly. As you listen, listen with an understanding that something's gonna be said that that I need to put into practice. I need to obey this because it's not a human messenger that's conveying this. This is the anointed one. This is Christ speaking. Listen candidly. In other words, be honest as you listen. Is it true? Is it not? What is this saying about me? Listen devoutly or with sincerity. Listen earnestly, meaning by your spirit, allow the truth to penetrate to the inner parts. Listen with feeling and sensitivity and listen with gratitude. I thought it was great. As you look at this list, is this how you hear Christ? Are you at his feet? Are you hanging on his words? Are you pressing into the things you don't understand because Lord, I know, I know there is truth here and I know I need to come into line with it. James would say when we so quickly forget the word of God, we're like people who go look in a mirror and walk away and immediately we forget what we look like. We're not looking or listening with any sort of sincerity. How well are we hearing? I love this quote from Mark Edwards in his pillar commentary. He said this, The degree to which one hears the parables, the extent to which one allows the kingdom to break upon oneself will determine the measure of one's understanding. Saving knowledge is not a matter of achieving but of receiving. Receiving. Did you hear what he said? Oh, that we would come into the light of Christ and would break our souls open. That we would be laid bare before him. That we would be changed, that we would be renewed, that we would be seen for what we are. There's two kinds of people in the world, people who are willing to let the kingdom of God show them who they are, and people who are not willing to let the kingdom of God show them who they are. If you are not willing to come into the light of Christ and let the kingdom of God speak into who you are and into what you will be and become, if you do not allow that, then you're not listening well. And Jesus says you're under under threat. You're under threat that the knowledge you think you have will be taken from you. One of the most challenging and confronting things is understanding that there will be many people who hear the gospel and hear and know something about Jesus, but who haven't really heard, who haven't really listened, who haven't really brought themselves into the light of God, who haven't come and let, the, let their souls be exposed by the kingdom, who, who haven't beheld Christ. And they think they have something. Jesus said even what they think they have is going to be taken from them. But those who listen well, they will be given more They'll be rewarded, and can I encourage you? You, you might be so scared of, of walking in the light of God. You might, like me, <laughs> sometimes you're afraid to, to crack open your Bible, and you think, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. I, 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 God's going to just, just be angry and upset with me. Can I tell you, his word is meant to heal and restore. You may need to repent, absolutely, but it's not meant to condemn But there will come a time when there's nothing more to be heard and God is going to finally and fully say that's it. It's been enough time for listening. Last thing on this point, Isaiah chapter 66 describes the, it's the very last chapter of the book of Isaiah. And it describes God bringing his ultimate reign. It's a vision of the future. And I want you to hear the words of the Lord as he talks about bringing his judgment. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people hate you and exclude you because of my name. He says, they they mock them saying, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But God says they will be put to shame. God goes on in that chapter to describe the fundamental difference between people who hear him and don't hear him. In one way, it's the gap between heaven and hell itself. So Jesus says, consider carefully. And moving on, the last scene we have in this section, it's an illustration. We have the image of the lamp and Christ the lamp, and here we have the illustration, verses 19 to 21. Here in this section, Luke has recorded for us the account where Jesus' mother and his brothers are looking for him. Now in the other gospels, in Matthew and Mark, we see places where the writers have put in some of the motives of Mary and Jesus' brothers. But here Luke doesn't really tell us why they're looking for him. The point is they can't get to him. And when a messenger comes to Jesus, he says this, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. Again, that phrase, they wanna see Jesus. There's maybe a hint of possessiveness in here that, that, that Jesus is under obligation to stop what he's doing and to go out and to see his mother and brothers. There's hints of that, but it's probably more just an occasion for this thing that Jesus is trying to teach. He says in verse 21, he replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And you might think this is a really clever saying by Jesus. (laughs) Can I tell you it's ultimately quite subversive. It takes the structure of his society at the time and he flips it on his head. Listen again to the words of John Carroll. He says this, he says, when Jesus calls as disciples persons who are willing to leave everything to be with him, who make their commitment to the work of God's realm their primary commitment, he is engaging in socially and politically subversive practices. This is because in that day, even more so than our day, but in that day in particular, your identity was determined by your family, your profession, your allegiances was determined by your family. Your commitments, everything was determined by your biological family. And Jesus is happy enough to take what seems like a very innocuous request. Hey, can you come outside? Can you come out, Jesus? Just go see your mom, brother. They're, they're, they're standing out there waiting. The, the implication is, look, you, you really should regard them. It's your mother and brothers, Jesus. They're not just part of the crowd. They're different. They're different. They're important. You you need to listen to them. And and Luke is careful. He's not trying to show Jesus as, as undermining the importance of family. But rather, he's elevating the importance of the kingdom of God. Because in the dawning of the kingdom of God, biological relationships do not take priority over your relationship to the kingdom. I'm going to say that again. In the kingdom of God, who your parents and your siblings are, who your grandparents are, does not take priority over your allegiance to the kingdom of God. Jesus is happy to redefine this. He redefines family. This is almost as if he's saying, oh, we're talking about family? Oh, well, I'll tell you who my family is. My family... My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. What? Now we're going to put the first point of this message to the test. How are you hearing that? As Jesus says this, my mothers and my brothers are those who put the word of God, who hear the word of God and put it into practice. As you hear that, how are you hearing that? Are you sitting there feeling really empathetic? Oh, Jesus, his poor mother, you know? Here he goes. Wow, how hard it would have been, how hard it would have been to be the mother of the Messiah. Are you a little bit cranky at Jesus? You know, i gonna always got to make a scene. Or are you hearing that is, oh wow. That's true. Jesus, you're right. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for putting this back into perspective for me. I love this because Jesus, he it's not like he obliterates the concept of family. He's not saying There is no such thing as family. In the kingdom of God, there's no family. No, he says family is a beautiful concept. God created family. Let me tell you what it truly means. Those who hear and do the word of God are my mother and brothers. And I want to ask you this. If the mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, Who's the father in this family? It's God himself. Jesus is saying, with the dawning of the kingdom, I'm redefining family. A family where your creator is also your father. And so, those who hear his word and do it like I hear his word and do it, Jesus saying, These people are my family. That's the true reality. And this is at the same time totally confronting and totally consoling. It's confronting to anyone who would seek to define themselves by their earthly biological family. If you are somebody who who sees yourself primarily in those terms, and that's who you are, this is challenging. Because Jesus is happy to disregard it. But if you are somebody who says, I... I've been so disappointed and so broken with people. I've been so hurt, I've been so afflicted. All all I want is, is, is to belong and to be safe and to be secure. And you say, I see that my God can give that to me, but I wonder, Jesus is saying, you can come on in, you're a part of this family. That's why we say at WDBC, we're a family of faith. We belong to the family of God. We're not trying to be kitschy. We're, we're, not, we're not trying to be clever. Some sort of marketing thing. No, this is what God says. If you believe, if you believe the word of Christ, if you accept him, if you hear, or put his words into practice, the Bible calls that faith. And if you have faith, guess what? That's your adoption papers. The Spirit of God comes in and dwells you, and you are stamped, marked, sealed. You belong in the Father's family. What a God that would create a new family, that, that would have a family that stretches continents and races transcends every earthly class that goes so far and is so inclusive not on the basis of how wealthy you are not on the basis of your own ability to perform religious duties that's not it not on the basis of of what era you're born in or or how much you know or how smart you are how clever you are not not on the basis of popularity everybody might hate you you can still be a part of god's family I mean, how comforting is that? How often do the psalmists say, though father and mother forsake me, God, I know you accept me? It's confronting, it's consoling all at the same time. Why are you doing this, Jesus? Jesus says, the kingdom of God creates a family among those who recognize God in his sovereignty and in his goodness. He's redefining faith on the base family on the basis of one's faith in Jesus. It's a fundamental shift in the core identity of who we are. And we are Christians, therefore, first and foremost. If you don't get this, then, then, then I got to tell you, there's a bumpy road coming for you ahead because Jesus is going to tell people, he's going to say, unless you're prepared to hate father, mother, brother, wife, children, unless you're prepared to love me more than them, you cannot have a part with me. And it's not that an earthly love for your family is bad or wrong. It's not. But, like so much in this world, when we take the good thing that God has made and we bow down to it and we serve it and we sacrifice for it and we make it our master, when we do that, we are committing idolatry and God will not have it. And you will be empty. And you will be profaning the God who made you and loves you. Worship God first and everything will fall into place eventually. You try to make everything else fall into place and you don't worship God first. You don't come properly before him. All that effort is meaningless. All of that stuff doesn't even matter. You must come to God in worship. As Jesus would say to the woman at the well, the Father is desiring those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what he's doing. That's where worship happens with those who seek him. This is the image and this is the illustration. All of it's designed to probe you. All of it's designed to prod you and and, and to draw you in to say, have you really heard Jesus rightly? Are you really listening to what he says? Are you accepting his message? Are you coming into the light? Or do you see the light and and you're sort of trying to go like this? Yep, I'm in the room, Jesus, yep, yep, I'm here. Jesus is making a new family. You're invited to be a part of it. Faith is thicker than blood. Christ shed his blood that you would be forgiven. And if you will receive him as he is, then you will will be welcomed into that family. This is what it means to hear God's word properly is to put it into practice. We're going to come to the table now and we're going to take communion together. I invite you if you're at home and you're watching and and you would like to take communion with those brothers and sisters who've gathered with you, you're welcome to do that. Jesus broke this bread and he said that these symbols, the bread and the cup, they represent this new covenant. It's, it's this new, <coughs> the, the terms of a new agreement. It's, it, it's, it's a new defining reality that Messiah would shed his blood and die, that he would bear our sins in his body on the tree so that we could be forgiven, that we could have a seat at the table. And mercifully, God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So if you've been laboring this week, thinking, "Oh, I just gotta, I just gotta earn my, earn my way back to God," please stop. You can't. You might need to repent. You might need to turn around. But God's not waiting for you to somehow amass. A certain number of good deeds or good behaviors so that he lets you out on parole. No, the full pardon is there. But to receive it, to receive it means that you've seen Jesus for who he is, that he is God in flesh, that you've beheld him properly, and that as the Son of God, fully God, fully man, that you hear his words with the authority of God himself. Let's pray. God, would you minister to our hearts today? Would you bless us as we come to your table? Thank you for these symbols that help us remember. Amen.